Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventuresin.net. I'm Sean Claver, your host, and with me today are your two co-hosts. We've got Wailu. Hey, Sean. Hey, How are you? Good, good. Are you ready for uh, your winter? Uh, it's a little while away, <laughs> but um, <laughs> well, we're going to autumn first. So. Yeah, okay, okay. Well, I mean, we're just starting to warm up just a little bit here, so that's what made me think about, oh, now it's going to cool down for a while. It's been one of like the, the coldest summers we've had, actually. I don't know what's happened. It's had a lot of rain. I don't think it's it's gotten over like 33, which is like 100 or something like that for you guys for, for all summer. So yeah. it's good. I don't because I hate the heat. But it's actually been pretty good. But um, <laughs> it, it is nice to go to the beach once in a while. But it's been too cold. So. Nice. And our other co-hosts, we got Caleb Wells. Hey, hey. From the how are y'all? The uh, humid south of the U.S. Yeah, it's been it's been cold the last couple of weeks. But yesterday it was mid 70s, and today it's 50s. Yeah, you're actually wearing so a t-shirt. I'm, I'm honestly t-shirt ready. This week, not your, your your winter outfit that you were all bundled yeah. up inside your yes. house. Your, right. your winter clothes on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know the houses down here they're they're built for heat, not for cold, right? Right? Because you build houses differently. No, um, I'm ready for furnaces uh, for spring. and things like that, or just AC. Yeah. <laughs> now we we have central heat and air. Right? We have both. Most of the houses down here don't have fireplaces because you don't really need them. Mm-hmm. Ours does. And that's one of my things my wife loves. Even when it's 70 degrees, she likes to put a fire on during the winter. Uh, I'm using, you know, air quotes, mm-hmm. right? But yeah, we're good. And we're getting into the swing of Mardi Gras. I mean, get more and more parades every week now as we lead up to the big weekend so uh, we're doing good your uh, collection of beads ready we are quite honestly all the throws and stuff that we get we don't ride in in any of the floats because it it, it's expensive Uh. (laughs) (laughs) or it can be but but we everything we get right and you get you get you get pounds of this stuff we usually give away or donate or whatever because there's just not enough room for it yeah talking about heating at dc made me think about you know where i grew up in western washington almost nobody had air conditioners because you're 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 close to the puget sound there with the water that kind of was your built-in air conditioner for most of uh western washington but uh last couple of years i think more people over there are starting to add ac because it's gotten 90s 95 maybe even 100 and something over there so people are changing their minds all right well it's the it's climate change right the world's going to heck in a handbasket <laughs> and on that note <laughs> yeah yeah let's bring on our guest with that that one okay let's welcome kevin griffin welcome to the show kevin yeah welcome uh to me heck in the handbasket that's my nickname <laughs> i didn't know that you knew that but here i am man i'm psychic <laughs> it's good to have you on oh thanks i'm glad to be here hey folks this is charles maxwood from top end devs and lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, 
whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. You've got lots of psychics in uh, New Orleans, I think. And they'll tell you the oh, yeah. future for a price, right? <laughs> well, on every block. Yep. All right, Kevin, why don't you uh, tell us a little, little bit about yourself, yeah, um, kind of what you do, how you got into development, and and uh, how you got into .NET? Sure. Well, hi, everyone. My name is Kevin Griffin. I'm a 12-time Microsoft MVP based out of Norfolk, Virginia. My day job, I'm an independent consultant um, working with a variety of small and mid-sized businesses on anything .NET. I started my career long, 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 long time ago uh, working for a little startup called Symantec. You might have heard of them. And did a lot of C++ for about three months. And then I was part of a mass layoff, which, you know, very early in my career, it was good to be laid off because then I realized there was absolutely no such thing as job security. I moved on to a consulting company where I was introduced to .NET and I introduced myself to the .NET community. I have been a speaker and contributor to the .NET community for a very long time. So that's actually, that's how I got in the .NET was I was writing some .NET code and this was back in 2007, probably, and realized, all right, I need to learn more about this, found user groups, found code camps and mini conferences and started traveling and just trying to absorb as much as I could. And I just got to a point with .NET where I realized, all right, I'm getting too old to learn something new. So I'm just going to stick to the .NET community for now. And thankfully it's gotten bigger and better ever since. But I'm here now. My specialty is doing ASP.NET Core, deploying solutions to Microsoft Azure. And I love everything web development. And very recently, I released a course on one of my favorite topics in the .NET stack, and that's SignalR for building real-time collaborative applications. All right, nice, nice. Why don't you kind of give us a kind of introduction to what SignalR is? Yeah, definitely. I tell everyone, SignalR is probably the most boring library you're going to use in .NET, but it's because it, it doesn't do anything flashy. It does really small demos very well. It's not like something like any framework or Maui. Where it's like boom, bam, and you see all these, these great demos come out of it. The purpose of SignalR is to connect your clients. So if you're pushing out web clients, if you're pushing out mobile clients, if you're pushing out applications on IoT devices, you name it, anything that runs .NET, how do you connect all these individual clients together? And one topic I like to discuss is just uh, shared state. So if something happens on your server, whether it's a web server or some service you're maintaining, something happens, you need to notify all these different clients that something's happened. What? How do you go about doing that? And if we went into that problem solving with our 2007 hats on, uh, the answer would not be very good. Uh, if we were building a web app, we would say, well, I would just pull the server every five seconds or 10 seconds or five minutes. 
you name the interval. And that's not a good solution to that problem at all. That's not a solution that scales. And what we have now is we have this holy grail called WebSockets. And everyone's like, oh, yes, use WebSockets for everything. And there's plenty of situations where WebSockets doesn't work and doesn't solve the problem the way that you expect it to. So there are different fallbacks that we, we can use. And it puts the onus on you, the developer, to write all these different ways for your applications to communicate. And it turns out that's a pain in the butt because writing it one way in WebSockets is a pain in the butt. Writing it another way to use service end events is a pain in the butt. Using a third way to support long polling or interval polling, that's a pain in the butt. Not to mention, all right, let's support all three of these different ways. SignalR came around in the very early days of WebSockets around 2013 and said, well, what if we wrote an abstraction and we worried about the details? How how does the client and the server connect? And you as a developer, you just use the abstraction and then just push it live and we'll figure out all the details. And that's what really made SignalR stand out from solutions on other platforms. Like I was doing a lot of Node.js back then. They were, they were just saying, well, use WebSockets. Well, again, WebSockets doesn't always work. And here we are on .NET, we have SignalR. I can write very robust real-time applications with very little code, and it just works 100% of the time, no matter what the circumstances are. Uh, so fast forward, where are we? Almost 10 years later with SignalR, and it's just improved dramatically going from .NET Framework to .NET Core, now .NET. And it's gotten better, and it's baked into so much stuff that people are using it daily and they probably don't realize it. So it's built into many applications in Windows itself. It's built into Visual Studio if you're a Visual Studio user. Uh, it's built into things like Blazor and whatnot. But there's this whole programming paradigm that you can use and you can actually get a lot of benefit from if you learn some of the, the small details. Uh, so that's why I wanted to do a course was to teach everyone all these little details show you some application of of signal in action and hopefully help everyone build better robust real-time applications so what's it take to uh kind of get SignalR set up and just you know the basics to get it going yeah well let's just take the example of a web application and i'm pushing out some sort of client so whether it's Angular, whether it's Vue, React, or someone's still using Ember or jQuery, it doesn't matter uh, from that standpoint. From the server, we just need to set up what we call a hub. And a hub is, it's, a hub's a really good name. It's a central point where all your various clients can connect and it manages those connections and it helps you marshal messages from one client to other clients or from the server to all the clients. And turns out if you're building a brand new ASP.NET core application, it's just, it's included. You add your basic uh, configure services, then you set up a, an endpoint to go to your hub. It's two lines of code by itself. And the hub is just a class that exists inside your web application uh, that can respond to all these incoming requests. Uh, over on the client side, you just set up a connection and you tell it to connect to the server and it takes care of the rest. So it figures out, should I use WebSockets? Should I use 
service end events? Should I use long polling? Uh, it figures out those details. And then it's just uh, at its core, it's a pub subsystem. So your server can publish or listen for messages uh, and your clients can publish and listen for messages. It's just a lot of communication back and forth based off different events that occur uh, in the system. So on the, on the client side there, is it is it one client library to plug into all the different frameworks or is it uh, different ones that you have to find out for your specific, specific framework? Yeah, if we're talking JavaScript, it's uh, one NPM package. It's all written in TypeScript. So you can pull it in if you're using any sort of build process or like Webpacker or such. It integrates really easily with those. Uh, if you're not, so say you're, let's say you're that person that's still doing jQuery and you don't have all these fancy build tools. You're just deploying straight JavaScript. Uh, you have all the, the uh, deployable files that you can uh, pull from the same NPM package and you just use it the same way you would with the TypeScript libraries. It, what's great about that is your, you have one for anything JavaScript you're going to do. Uh, there's another client library for if you're doing .NET. Uh, it's like the Blazor apps usually use the .NET library. You, but you can even put SignalR on a console app or inside a Windows service that acts as a client. There's a full .NET client that's available. I've even seen some implementations in Go, uh, Go and Ruby uh, that talk. So you have a Ruby client that can talk to a SignalR server running up in on a .NET server somewhere. Uh, so the there really is this distinction between the client and the server. They can be wherever in, in whatever language you want them to be in. So, like you said, right, SignalR's been around for a while now. And the nice thing is, for the most part, you don't even think about it because yeah. it just handles all this stuff for you, like with Blazor and MVC apps and some of the stuff out of the box. With uh, with your work with SignalR, have you been in positions where you had to extend it or, or had to to work around some limitations in it? Not necessarily limitations. I've worked with a number of clients that their core issue is that they needed to be able to update the the state of a of a client, a, a website in real time, and for a variety of different scenarios. One one in particular that I talk about a lot does nine one one aggregation. So real time nine one one data is coming into the system. It's aggregated across multiple counties and cities, and it produces these real-time dashboards. What's happening across maybe three or four counties, or it might be all 10 counties in a locality. It's, it is very customizable, and we take this incoming data and we spit it out in real time. When I first came onto that project, it's, the complaint was, Kevin, we, we have this app. It's running on a server, uh, like the classic server under someone's desk issue. Uh, it's running, it's IIS and SQL Server on the same box. This thing's 100% all the time. And I went through and did a basic code review. It was .NET 4 or something. They had upgraded it. Uh, but it's web forms inside of an update panel. And I don't know, any listeners go that far back, but update panels when yeah. it first came out were like, this is amazing. It's doing a lot of really cool stuff. And for those who have no idea what I'm talking about, an update panel was basically a, a panel you would put on your page. And what ASP.NET would do is it would go to the server, re-render the entire page. 
and then take the little snippet that changed and replace it inside this update panel. And they were doing this on, it was basically the whole page was an update panel and it was updating every second <laughs> for all, uh, what, 900,000 users that they had in real time. And all the logic Ouch. for this thing was on the SQL server. Like, there was no code logic at all. It was all, the SQL server was running his massive store procedure to figure out what should be in the view, what colors things should be. And they're like, this, this, I could have made a plethora of other changes that didn't include signal R and fixed a lot of these issues. But, but we went through and decided, well, let's use signal R. I had done some other small projects with it. We did a complete rewrite to use signal R and we uh, deployed it and we deployed it and we were watching some of the system stats and it was sitting at like 1% CPU. It was like, uh, I broke something. I broke something. Like I have to have broken something because it's not doing any work. <laughs> and it turns out it was running just fine. We we had rebuilt the paradigm. So instead of all these pages updating themselves every second, we would do an initial data dump and we would just listen for deltas. So as soon as a change came in, we would notify any view that needed to know about it. And that might happen a couple dozen times a second, or it might happen once every hour. It really depended on what was happening out there in the world. So we took this massive system and we made it much more performance by just using something that was included in the .NET framework. And, and I've gone on through there and like none of my other projects are as exciting as that one. That was always my fun one because the, the story I got after it was uh, the they had deployed it and basically the way they use the system is they put them on big screen TVs and firehouses. And this is in the middle of Podunk, United States. So it might be one or two guys in a firehouse. There ain't nothing much to do. So they're watching the screen and they know when the screen flashes red, it's something that they should be aware of. So it was one evening they were looking up at the screen and they see the red flashing like, oh, that's something we respond to. So they suit up, they get in their truck and the doors open and they're they're heading out. And as they're heading out, the dispatcher comes over the intercom and says, hey, you need to respond to this call. Everyone go quickly. Big deal. Uh, well, they're already they're already leaving. And these emergency folks, they're they're quick. Like I give them so much credit, but they are suited up. They're in the truck. They're out the door. And that's before the announcement came in. So I always make this argument that, hey, using Signal R, I am saving lives because anyone who's ever <laughs> had a medical emergency, you know, that seconds matter. And we're able matter, to notify right. emergency services before a human can go do the notification. And, you know, maybe I saved someone's life that day. I'm going to say I did, but, you know, don't fact check me on that. But That's it's cool. all this underlying yeah. library. And now you can take the same the same concepts and put it into your own, you know, classic boring line of business application. And you, you're not going to save lives with it, but you're going to get oohs and ahs from folks. So have you played much with the Azure Signal R service? Uh, actually, I have a whole section on it in the course because uh, there's a time and place for it. And I'm so for folks who haven't played with it, there's this problem with Signal R where when you start to scale, uh, so let's say you're just working at your desk, you're one server that handles all the incoming requests. 
Well, most of us probably aren't working in an environment where we have just one server that's doing all the work. You might have at least two or three or in a larger infrastructure, you might have a couple dozen that are all serving up the same web application and you have a load balancer or a reverse proxy or something in front of it that's marshalling the traffic to one node or another. Well, that actually breaks down the SignalR story because there's no good way for one server to know about the clients on other servers. So we have a concept called backplane that allows all these servers to talk to each other and it ensures that if I do something on the system that causes a change, well, the server I'm connected to can send a message to the server that Caleb's connected to. That So Caleb knows about the change I made because if we don't have that backplane, he'll never know. It just gets lost in the ether. You could do that using just Redis and it works great. I have two clients that are running behind Redis right now and they're perfectly happy uh, there. But there is also the... Azure SignalR service. And the key thing that it does is it connects all your servers together, but it also takes a lot of the connection overhead off of your servers. Because let's assume best case scenario, I'm connecting via WebSocket and 10,000 other people are connecting via WebSocket as well. Well, that's 10,000 socket connections to my server. Well, there, there is a defined number of connections you could potentially have depending on your system spec, CPU and memory. And I have learned the hard way that you can just DDoS yourself accidentally <laughs> with, with WebSocket requests. That's another story for, for a little bit later. But the nice thing that Azure SignalR service does is it takes all those connections off your server, they go directly to an Azure service, and then the Azure service talks to your individual servers. So uh, it makes, makes everything much cleaner. Everything works seamlessly. Uh, they've done an amazing job. And the one thing they don't tell you is that the the abstraction for what makes the Azure SignalR service work, you could technically write your own. So if you wanted to write your own SignalR service, you could. And then you don't have to pay Microsoft for it. But the, the place it falls apart is as you start dealing with more and more connections, if it can get pricey. Like it's it's like a classic Azure resource. It's it starts out relatively cheap, but then oh, I'm using it too much and I owe a lot of money. And it scales per day instead of per hour, like uh, a lot of Azure resources. So I have a, a video in the course where I sit down and do the math. And I actually talk about why we didn't use it on one of our clients, because our scale timeline, we really only needed what Azure Signal Service provided for like a four hour period of the day. And it wasn't worth the cost because you have to pay for the entire day. It's like, well, if I was only paying for the four hours, it It'd be a no-brainer, but I have to pay for the entire day, and this is going to get pricey pretty quickly. So we decided to to just go with Redis, and it still works perfectly fine. So when would you choose using SignalR versus just making web API calls? Oh, that's a great question. So the big thing to kind of recognize about SignalR is uh, we're using it as a pub sub. So we're sending, we're publishing messages and we're subscribing to events as they occur. Those events might not necessarily come in the order that they're issued. So there's, there's, a, there's a slight timeline concern. There's also a concern of guaranteed deliverability. SignalR does not guarantee any message sent through it is going to be delivered. There's, so there's a little bit of a requirement on your end 
to make sure you're handling your connection events and, and all that good stuff. But let's say just worst case, you're connected to hotel Wi-Fi or uh, conference Wi-Fi for those of us who still go to conferences. Your conference Wi-Fi drops out for five, 10 seconds and then reconnects. Well, you, your server could have been sending messages that time and you're disconnected. And even though SignalR will automatically reconnect for you, it's never going to get those messages re-delivered because SignalR is not tracking that stuff. So I always tell folks when the data is critical, like you need to know whether or not something's gone up to the server, use standard classic API requests. Because the nice thing about an API request, if I make a post or a put to a server, I'm going to get back a, a 200, a 201, or a 400, or a 500. I'm going to have that that response that tells me exactly what happened in my case. And that's a that's that's a good place to be. Uh, we what we normally do with our with our deltas coming down is if we ever become disconnected for any reason from the server, and SignalR will tell you all that stuff, uh, we just assume all of our state is bad and we we refresh the state from scratch. But anything critical that needs to be sent up to the server. We always do that with an API request. Uh, we'll never do that through SignalR itself because we're not quite sure. We could send it, but we're never quite sure if the server is going to get it because there's no uh, sync acknowledgement model built into SignalR. And there never will be. So, of course, I would say they, they would never do that, but David Fowler might be working on that right now, and I don't know. He's a smart guy. So I'm here with uh, JD from Raygun. JD, we've been talking quite a bit lately about Core Web Vitals and keeping track of the performance of your applications. And one of the hard things is, is that you kind of get this aggregated data from Google that changes over time, but it's got this lag on it. And I, I think we actually had some folks from Raygun where we were talking about, in particular, this problem and having some, some way of getting faster feedback on this kind of a thing. Yeah, 100%. I mean, Google's official guidance is that you should be looking for a RUM tool and not relying on snapshotted data. So Raygun's RUM tool will collect all your core web vitals. And last time I checked, I think we were at about four to five seconds lag on ingesting data. So pretty close to real time on, wow. on how you're performing there. Um, but yeah, yeah, we have first class support in our real user monitoring product. Yeah, real user monitoring means that each request that comes in, each track that people follow, that's what gets tracked. And so you know your numbers right away. Yeah, that's right. Actual data from actual users, it's so much more valuable than synthetic data. Um, and you also collect it across the entire user base. So you can see like, who are my 1%, you know, most disenfranchised users who experience the worst sort of performance. And, you know, between, between us, Chuck, I'm stoked that Google's doing this because as a user of software, I want my software to go fast. And I'm really glad they're creating a business incentive for all of us to work on the performance of our software. Yep, absolutely. So folks, if you want a real user monitoring tool that'll keep you on top of your core web vitals, go check out raygun.com. And you can actually just sign up for a free trial. What about the security? Like, is it, is it the same sort of security that you'd do for a normal web API? Do you just have a, I mean, like a bare authentication token? Yeah. Or something like that? There are uh, two general ways to approach it. The first is if you're using ASP.NET Core identity, uh, so you have a, an iPrincipe, SignalR will just tie into that. So anyone who's done any ASP.NET Core development, you know, you can uh, decorate a controller with authorize and you can even specify your roles or specific users. And SignalR, because it's ASP.NET Core, 
it will abide by all that. And so we have hubs that we build there strictly for administrators in our system. And we'll say, all right, authorize only to administrators. So when a person attempts to make the connection, if they're not authorized as an administrator, it's going to reject the connection altogether. Uh, so we get that benefit. Uh, we have a couple other systems that don't use the classic ASP.NET Core identity. We, we just do things through access tokens. Well, you can just pass an access token through SignalR. So the, for the initial connection, uh, you can say, this is, this is my authorization. It's, a, it's not as clean as the iPrincipal approach, but it's doable. And that's probably one of the few things that's going to get better over the next year or two as they iterate a little bit more on, on that model. And, and just in general, like using access tokens in ASP.NET, using access tokens in ASP.NET Core, that's not like a, that's not a perfect solution. They, they just haven't spent the time there that they probably should, but they're, I think they're, they're slowly getting there, but all that's doable. Or just open it to the world. I mean, just let anyone connect to everyone. Right? <laughs> Who needs security? Right. So, right. A lot of what we're talking is uh, web apps, right? Or stuff that's surfaced to the client. But SignalR is not just for web apps, right? That's How right. is is setting it up similar if you're if you have two services talking to each other and and how does that work? Yeah, very similar. Let's let's assume you're using the standard .NET client. So you have a console app and your console app creates a connection to your server and it subscribes to events that it needs to listen to and then it can send messages that, that it wants to send. It's actually a little bit nicer on the .NET client because you can strongly type all your, uh, all your messages. So, uh, so much of the work you do in the, the JavaScript client is magic strings. So, all right, magic string to call this method on the server, magic string to call that method. And magic strings are just one keystroke away from being wrong. <laughs> but on the .NET client and the .NET server, you can strongly type a lot of this stuff and just say, okay, well, here's the interface for what my client or my server is expecting. And that way you don't have to use magic strings. You just use the, the types as, you're, as you would just naturally do if you weren't writing a peer-to-peer -peer application. So I, but it works great. And I have a demo. Uh, I actually don't know if the demo is in the course where I have a web client and a console app that both connect to the same server. There's no server code changes that we don't have to tell the server, right, expect a web client or a console client or an iOS app. We just tell them, all right, you're looking for connections. And we have the web app and the client app both talking to the same service. And they, they receive and send the messages in their natural way, but the server doesn't care. It's just going to listen for the sockets. So is, uh, is SignalR, is it uh, unicast or multicast or both or whatever you need? It's, uh, well, it's, it's HTTP. So uh, all I need scenes is all on HTTP protocols. Right, but you, so, it can send uh, things well, out to like groups of people. You can group people. Uh, yes. And, and yep. send them all out at, at one time rather than just in each person gets their own type of connection, right? That So yeah, everyone has their own unique connection. Uh, from a messaging standpoint, I can say, send a message to a particular connection, send a message to everyone, send a message to everyone except certain people. I can group connections together and say, all right, well, here's the 
the sales group. Here's the IT group. Here's the administrators group. I only want to send a message to people in sales. There's a lot of flexibility around organizing all your different connections. The big thing I tell people is, even though SignalR will give a unique connection ID to every connection, and a connection in this case is uh, an open tab. So if I have two open tabs in Edge and they're both going to the same server, they're both different connections and they're identified separately on the server. Uh, even though I have this connection ID, I never will send a message directly to a connection ID. It's one of the few places where SignalR just is not, it breaks down, especially once you go into a load balance scenario. But groups, like groups work amazingly across the entire entire infrastructure. And I tell folks, put everything into a group and then just use groups diligently because there's no limit on how many groups you can have. And they almost 100% of the time work, uh, no matter what scenario you're in. So by nature, uh, SignalR is asynchronous, right? Yes. So if you're making API calls within .NET, what happens if you don't use asynchronous await or is it going to do it regardless of how you a lot of choose money to, to specifically do on this issue? <laughs> okay. One of, one of the things that happened, so let me describe the client's issue, was uh, they were using SignalR to just do simple field updates. So they have a they would have a form. Uh, so folks would navigate to a page who have a form. And if someone was editing the form, they wanted to real-time sync these changes to anyone else looking at the same form at the same time. Not a complicated scenario. But what was happening is someone would type in the form, send the request up to the server. The server would get in and say, all right, well, I need to send this to everyone else who's looking at this form, uh, which they were doing. They were using groups and they knew who was looking at that view, uh, except they weren't awaiting on these calls. They would send the message and they would just send it. And it was the classic works on my machine but I can't, but it breaks as soon as we push into production. And ultimately what ends up happening in these cases is a thread terminates and it terminates before the async process completes. And remember how I said, there's no such thing as message deliverability, deliverable message guarantee delivery. Restart deliverability. (laughs) There's no such thing (laughs) as message deliverability guarantees. So we would, it would send this message And there's nothing coming back telling, yeah, it it got there successfully. Or, oh, this person had disconnect. Like, there's none of that. It just shoots it off and what happens, happens. And what was happening in this case is it was never completing that that call. So the message was never getting sent. There's no error because there's, as far as SignalR is concerned, there's no error occurring. But, so it just goes along its way. But you see it as the end user. All right, well, I saw him press enter over here and there's nothing over there. I don't understand what the problem is. And we went through in this massive code review and it turns out every place they were making calls, a couple, I would love to say just a dozen different places, but it was a couple hundred different places. They had to go through and refactor all these to be asynchronous because they weren't even calling them from async methods. They were, they're all synchronous. So they had to, not just change the calls to SignalR, they had to refactor all the methods going up. They had to go change all their interfaces to be tasks. And it was a huge ordeal and took them a couple of weeks before they came back and and told me, hey, Kevin, this actually fixed all of our issues. (laughs) It took a while, 
And we probably should have done it right the first time, but here we are. So is that because the, the calls were just sitting there waiting for a response, but not getting anything back or something? Well, it was uh, async code running synchronously. So it was issuing, it was calling the method and then immediately dropping out of the stack. So eventually the thread would uh, terminate terminate itself. And Right, because SignalR is expecting to be able to let it go and go do yeah. something else and then it pick back up when it's done. But if it's done synchronously, like you said, it, it just, it goes in a never, never land. Right. Yep. So, yeah, interesting. Okay. So it's like, it's one of the bigger issues that a lot of .NET developers have in general is just async await development in general. And it's just thinking about, all right, I'm issuing this call. This call is going to go off and do work and then it's going to come back. And well, if you're, if you're not awaiting on these calls that should be awaited, uh, you cannot guarantee they're actually going to do what you expect them to do. You might just terminate a thread before that work's ever done. Is most one of the uh, common use cases like real-time chat? That might be something that no, some so people think about. The rule yeah. is, is we're not allowed to write chat apps <laughs> as, a, as a presenter, as a discusser of uh, SignalR. I'm not allowed <laughs> to write a chat app. And I am backed up by folks on the .NET team. <laughs> That's like, nope, you're not allowed to do it. They wrote one chat app as a demo a long time ago. No more ever since. So I, which is funny is I have a client that has chat capabilities built into the application. So I have written a chat app, but I was paid to do it. So I guess that, <laughs> that skirts the Yeah, rules. I figured that's just kind of the, the most basic example of what somebody might visually see what SignalR does for them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I once uh, used SignalR where I wanted to have concurrent form editing. So rather than, mm -hmm. you know, somebody opens up a form that they're working on, and locking it for everybody else so they can't get in there and make any changes, I said, well, let's not do that. Let's have them see real time as each pe person is making changes. And then I have the little, you know, toast pop up that says, such and such person has just made a change type of yep. thing. So that that was really nice to use that for SignalR for that. We're doing something very similar right now. It's uh, very much like a spreadsheet, like Google Sheets, where we have a couple hundred rows and someone might be editing row 10, but someone else is editing row 20. As you make changes to different cells, we communicate those changes across everyone looking at the view. So you can say, oh, you see, you can see everything change in real time. And it's, it's really fun, fun to watch, especially when it works, works well. So what else have we covered about SignalR that uh, our listeners should know about? That's a great question. It's always my um, final question, usually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would just tell people there are, Look for opportunities in your application to where you might be able to use SignalR or not even use SignalR, but use real-time capabilities. The, the big thing that SignalR does for you is it allows you to maintain state across client applications in your server. Uh, your server is the authoritative source of truth on anything that's happening. And luckily, it knows when everything happens. So if a new email comes into the system, if you're tracking um, a, something on file system, if you're looking at Azure queues or service bus, and you want to be able to notify people when things happen in the system, just having a simple SignalR hub that can communicate state changes uh, will add so much more flexibility to your interfaces. And I think your users would appreciate it uh, so much because I don't know how many times I go into 
current day applications where you still have to refresh the page or press a button to get the latest states. But when I can hit a button to get the latest state, why can't the server just tell me that the state has changed? It knows that the state has changed and it's relatively no effort for it to communicate those changes down to me. So I tell everyone, it doesn't matter how big or small your app is, just look for these little cases. Uh, we just worked on a project not too long ago where the folks had an identifier up in the top right corner for notifications. And a variety of people would get these notifications and they were doing a long poll, not a long poll, they were, they were making a poll request themselves every five seconds. And, but everyone was doing the same poll every five seconds for just new notifications. And these notifications don't change very often. They might happen a couple times a minute during the work hours, but most of the times they're just sitting there returning the same data. And these endpoints are doing database work. They're doing complicated work, which a call by itself might be, what, 20, 30 milliseconds, relatively fast. But you aggregate that across a couple thousand users and it turns out it's a very expensive call to make over and over and over again. And their telemetry was telling them that, that this is by itself not an expensive call, but it's being called so often that it becomes expensive. So we said, well, what's it doing? Well, it's just looking at the database to see if there are any, any rows that are marked as, all right, unread. So, okay, well, you know when they're unread when you put them in there, right? All right, well, how about when you put something in the database, we do a quick calculation and then send the, the message to everyone that needs to know about it. And that's effectively what we did. We took away an enormous amount of the traffic they were sending to their servers. And we were taking this huge load off the database because it didn't have to compute this stuff every single time a client came looking for more information. So I would tell folks out there, look for these opportunities. They probably exist. And if you simply add signal R, you might become the the new hero because like, oh, look at the cool fancy thing that that Kevin did. Has signal R changed much over the years? You know, uh, and do you know if there's anything that's coming up that they're going to add to it? Not drastically. Uh, if we compare signal R to essentially two versions of signal R, you have signal R for .NET Framework, and then there was signal R that was rewritten when .NET Core 2 came down. That was the really the biggest change. And even like 80% of it was identical. There was this 20% though that threw a lot of us in for a loop. But for the most part, going from .NET Core, what, 2.2 to uh, where we .NET 6, almost .NET 7 preview coming down soon. Uh, there's been relatively no changes, no syntax changes. And that was one of the things I was scared of with the course was I built the course for .NET 5. And .NET 6 dropped in. There was no there was no code changes. It was all all identical. They they do have a couple little features that they're working on. Nothing I'm getting my hopes up about yet until they're baked because I don't know if those are going to be .NET 7 features or if they're going to be held for .NET 8. But the core of what we have in SignalR is is pretty baked, and they're just making simple performance enhancements to it. Uh, they're making packages smaller and uh, they're not breaking the API. That's the big thing. Oh, I could tell you, this is how I DDoS myself. <laughs> because in .NET Framework, SignalR would use one WebSocket for all the hubs you had in your system. 
and we built a system with five hubs because the mentality back then was you treated a hub in the same way you would treat like an MVC controller. So you have a controller for a very specific set of tasks. Uh, you have a hub for a very specific set of tasks. So we had multiple hubs for a very specific set of tasks. And it was fine because we had one WebSocket that talked to all these different hubs. When they made the change to the .NET Core, they made an adjustment to that rule where it was one WebSocket per hub. So we deployed, <laughs> we did a migration and we deployed it instead of the one WebSocket that we were expecting, we had five WebSockets. Actually didn't think that was a big deal until I had 900 people hit the server and I had what, 900 people times five WebSockets. What's that? 4,500 connections. My server, one of my servers was restarting itself because it ran out of socket connections and effectively had a top level exception, restarted itself. And it was doing this every four or five minutes. And this was this was wow. years ago. Oops. <laughs> and yeah. the, the Azure tools were not as good back then in app services to tell yeah. you what your problem was. And it was just happened. I was in a log somewhere and I saw socket uh, sockets exhausted. I'm like, what does that mean? I'm, All right. Why am I exhausting my sockets? <gasps> oh, because it's not just the 4,500 WebSocket connections. It's also the... 2030 JavaScript, CSS, HTML requests being made per page load. And we have a particular app that people go F5 crazy on, even though they shouldn't because we have signal R, but they keep hitting F5 to reload the pages. And then they have four or five tabs each, all with their own five connections. And once I sat down and did some rough math, I realized, yep, I did this to myself. And it's the most hurried a uh, refactor I think I've ever done in my career was being up till two, three in the morning, rewriting five services down to, I think I got down to two and two or three and then got it redeployed. And that, that took care of some of my issues. I also had to ramp these app service plans up with a ton of memory to support more sockets. And it was just a headache across the board, but that's not a problem anymore. That app is now down to one web socket and all is right in the world. Very good. So actually, just in terms of deploying to Azure, is it is it only app service plans and SignalR service? Like, can you use like Azure Functions with it these days? Or yeah, yeah. There's a uh, support for Azure Functions, and that's actually getting a little bit better. And I haven't done too much on uh, that standpoint, but you can basically take an Azure function connected to an Azure SignalR service and get sort of the same functionality. So let's say you have a spa out there, and it's not talking to an ASP.NET Core API, it's talking to Azure Functions. It's, you could technically have a WebSocket connected to the Azure SignalR service, and you could get real-time updates through that WebSocket that are deployed by Azure Functions. So you don't have to host any of the infrastructure yourself. I I don't do any of that. I've, I've only kind of played around with tech demos, but that is definitely a, that's a cool little tool to have in your back pocket if you're, in the camp of, I don't have any infrastructure at all. I want to just do everything serverless and as cheaply as possible. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. 
So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Okay, everyone. I think I'm going to move us on to picks now. Everybody ready? Caleb, what's your pick this week? No, I'm not ready. No, I, I am. Um, <laughs> uh, so, right. This gets tougher and tougher every week. Yeah, you're not. It doesn't sound like you're ready. <laughs> We've only been doing this for two years. I don't think you're ready. No, I, I am. I am. <laughs> so my pick today is actually a series that just wrapped up their first season on HBO uh, called Peacemaker. And it's not as good as Reacher. I actually liked Reacher better. The Peacemaker's funny, right? Uh, yeah, right. Peacemaker's funny. It's one of those things right, where you can kind of have it going in the background while you're doing something else and get a little laugh. And I did, I did, I haven't finished it, but what I've watched, I have enjoyed. So uh, my pick is Peacemaker. Reacher had his funny parts. Because John Cena, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Eh, you know. <laughs> it, Peacemaker turns the, the blood and gore into like, ha ha, like his eagle and stuff. It's, it's very silly. Reacher really is more like, I'm going to kill you and stuff you in the trunk of a car. Funny. Don't give things yeah, away. They're not the same kind of funny. Yeah. Is, I'm not giving things away. How, <laughs> how, how does people know that's actually what happens? I did. I don't know that that happens in a TV show. I just made that up. Yeah. So is this <laughs> is this uh, part of the uh, Suicide Squad stuff or Peacemaker? It's well, it's the same Peacemaker from the movie. They just decided to make a TV show. All right. Just about him, and it's it, he's stupid. Yeah. But that's what yeah, makes it funny. <laughs> so, All right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Why? What's your pick? Yeah. So. I agree with Caleb that after the two years, um, these picks are getting harder and harder. But, um, uh, so this week, my pick is the the Xiaomi air pump. It's basically this like this electric pump that you can buy. It's basically, it's the size of like a power bank, and it can just pump up your car tires and your bike tires and your you know your basketball or whatever at home. So it means that I don't have to like I, I guess drive to the petrol station or whatever um, and fill up and. And yeah, like I don't have to actually pump up my bike tires by hand and stuff. And it's really handy because I can just kind of chuck it in the car. Um, and if I ever get a puncture or whatever, then I can, you know, I don't have to change the tire. You know? Yeah, it's pretty good. Hey, Wyatt, uh, just so you know, I used your pick from last week and bought that same scale because I'm trying to lose weight. And nice. I need to start weighing myself. So Did the you scale you suggested last, well I, haven't got, well, I haven't got the scale yet. And, and I imagine I've lost weight. <laughs> and I'm probably going to stand on the scale and realize I gained 10 pounds. So um, the scale is going to help me to lose weight. So thank you for that suggestion. We don't call it Fat no, Tuesday for nothing. Well, I oh, bought um, I bought that sleep analyzer that um, that Sean recommended as well. So these picks are right. pretty useful. So. <laughs> yeah. So you guys need to get out you know, more the, often uh, and come up with some picks. <laughs> well, this th this season of year, King Cakes... Uh, thankfully, we're working remote, so it isn't as big of an issue. But normally, when you're in the office, there's a king cake in the kitchen every day, <laughs> right? Whoa. And so if you get a piece or two every day for four weeks, you're going to gain weight. <laughs> so you can't just walk by it, huh? So, Heck no. It's Mardi Gras. <laughs> <laughs> so some just employee just gives you cake at work, is it? Like, um... King cake is its own 
thing. It's it's an interesting uh, dessert, and everyone has a baby inside of it. And so as you're eating it, someone cuts it, they find the baby, then they have to go get the next king cake, which means they typically go pick it up the next day and bring it to the office and you start the process all over again. Not a real baby, a plastic baby. <laughs> I remember seeing that on... Uh, yeah, a little plastic the, baby. Yeah, I saw that, yeah. I saw that <laughs> amazing race where they had to go through all these king cakes uh, to find the little baby. So, yep. yeah. Unless you yep. choke on it and then you don't have to get the next cake. <laughs> Do you know, and, and I know we're, we're beating a dead horse, but I had a coworker that moved down here and didn't understand the king cakes and he got the baby... And it was in the piece of cake, and he bit down on it and broke one of his tooth teeth. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, sorry, Sean. You, you, you go ahead. All right. All right. So my pick this week is a VR game called Demio. And it's a game that my son told me about, and I haven't actually tried it out, but I, I watched the videos and checked out the website. It's kind of like a VR board game playing D&D. So imagine you're you know playing the D&D board game in VR world awesome. with, with a bunch of your world your friends and get to see the little animations and things like Whoa. that right on as you're in front of it then you know pull the little cards up with your VR controllers and things like that so it's VR now and they actually are working on a PC version of it so you know somebody on a PC version should be able to interact with somebody that's in the VR version and so on and so forth so if you like D and D, you want you got a VR headset or want to get a VR headset, check out Demio. I really need to get an Oculus. I'm not going to anytime soon, but I need to. Well, there's new versions coming, so just wait. It'll okay, like uh, I will wait. Just wait six months. Yeah. Right. Yep. Right. All right, Kevin. Do you have a pick that you want our listeners to know about? Oh man, I, I totally want Reacher to be my pick now. So I have read every Jack Reacher book out there, even some of the short stories. Like, he's one of my favorite characters. And when I heard the new new show was coming out, I'm like, can't be as bad as Tom Cruise. Yeah, I like the show so, better than the, than the movies, yeah. <laughs> and it really was. Like, they hit all the tropes of Jack Reacher. And anyone who's read the books knows, like, there is just thing that Jack Reacher does that he was hitting on. I'm not going to use that as my pick, but it's an amazing pick. You should go watch the show. Let's see. It's going to be boring to have, like, a tech pick, but I don't think I'm going to do that. Uh, if... Any Marvel fans out there that haven't seen the Multiverse of Madness trailer that just came out, that that's probably my pick because I am stupid excited about that movie coming out in the next uh, two months, three months. Yeah, now's a very fun time to be a Marvel MCU fan. So definitely go, go oh, check yeah. that out. It's a lot of fun. We've I think we've discussed that where right we're at that point where all these companies are catering to our inner child from when yep. we were young right and they're just bringing in the big bucks so well i just got disney which i, I just got disney plus with my uh on my tv because it, it's included now with my cell phone subscription plan so yeah mm -hmm. i've got all that stuff now and kind of checking out the different shows that are on disney plus now so that's good so much to ban like if you're that a is actually or a star wars fan you're just in if you're a marvel or a star wars fan you're just in heaven <laughs> because there's so yeah. much new content all the time I was going to say, though, uh, there's actually one good thing about COVID is that it forced most of these companies to start releasing their movies direct to their streaming platforms. <laughs> yeah. So you don't have to go to the theater. So, hey. Yep. All right, Kevin. So if our listeners have questions, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Absolutely. Uh, probably Twitter. I'm on Twitter at one 
Kev Griff. That's the number one Kev Griff. My website's consultwithgriff.com. And if you're interested in learning about SignalR, I have my course, signalrmastery.com for all the information. And yeah, love to chat with people that are interested in SignalR. Great, great. If our listeners want to get in touch with the show, we'd love to get your feedback from you and let us know uh, what kind of topics you'd like to to hear us cover and uh, any changes we could do. So reach out to me. I am on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. And I'm Caleb Wells Coates. I don't have a dun-dun-dun-dun for that one. No. (laughs) We can just clickety-clack, clickety-clack. You're coding. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. All right. Thanks, everybody. And we'll catch our listeners on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Bye, y'all. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.